Good morning, Grace. For those of you visiting, my name is Junior Jamrionvid, and welcome here to Grace. We're uh, happy that you're here. Uh, I'm one of the members here at Grace, and occasionally I get asked to preach. I get that wonderful privilege this morning, so let us pray. Father God, I thank you for life that you promised to no one. Uh, you've graciously given us another day. May we leave changed. Uh, understanding better of who you are and your sovereignty in the midst of great suffering. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so uh, even at a young age, I was pretty opposed to Christianity. But I was never an atheist, though, a fact that I'm rather proud of. I always thought that worldview is a bit silly. I mean, uh, all of a sudden there's this Big Bang and all these complex systems magically came together to form and sustain life. It just, that always sounds silly to me, even, even as a kid. Doug Axe, I know you would appreciate that, right? Our, our resident biochem uh, expert. Um, yeah, so I never took that worldview seriously. So I always believed that God uh, was our creator, is our creator. But what did keep me from Christianity was the problem of suffering and evil. You've heard the question before, if God is all-powerful, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? And in trying to answer this question, some have suggested, well, maybe God isn't all-powerful and he's just doing the best he can. Others have reasoned that God is all-powerful, but he's really not good and he doesn't care about the affairs of people. In short, What's implied here is you can't have a God that is all-powerful and good while suffering and evil exists. And on the surface, this sounds perfectly reasonable. And even as a kid, I totally bought into this idea. And as I looked out into the world, I saw a lot of pain and suffering. I looked into my own life, and it too was filled with pain and distress. Then I asked myself, yeah, what kind of God would allow all this to happen? My family and I lived under abuse for many years. I remember crying out to God even as a kid for help, and he wouldn't answer, at least not in the way I thought he would or in the time I'd hoped. Maybe he truly didn't care, and slowly that took hold of my heart. Maybe God's good purposes and intentions are constantly being frustrated by the forces of evil. I learned later that's actually more frightening than just mere indifference. Interestingly, though, I believe that the trial of Jesus has some insight into this theological idea. I'm going to make the assertion that, yes, God is both almighty and good, even though suffering and evil exists, because suffering has a purpose. In our passage today, we're going to see Jesus go through severe suffering. But this is only the beginning of the suffering Jesus will go through. But by the end of our passage, I hope that we would be more enlightened with God's sovereign plan and stand confident in the God of the Bible. And when we face opposition, we could stand with lion-like boldness and stare down the forces of evil, fully assured that victory is at hand because of who Christ is and what he has done. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 22. Our passage today, Luke chapter 23. 2 verses 63 through 71. And it's a 
relatively short passage, a quick outline here, the first section, it's the two main sections here, verses 63 through 65, we have Jesus being held by the guards or the temple, uh, the soldiers under the authority of the chief priests. And here, while Jesus is held, he's reviled and he's mocked and tortured. This precedes the interrogation of Jesus, which is our next section of the passage, verse 66 through 71, where the council condemns Jesus by his own testimony. So let us read together, starting in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So here at the beginning of our passage, they were mocking him as they beat him. Now, this is gross mistreatment of a prisoner. He didn't even have the common decency that normal prisoners were allotted. And here, uh, Jesus received no respect. They were torturing him, making a fool out of him. And even in Mark's gospel, he added they were spitting at him. And it goes on in verse 64, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So these villains knew of Jesus' reputation for being some kind of prophet. And the way they were mocking him shows that they believed him to be some sort of deceiver. And now they're trying to expose him. To them, he couldn't really be a prophet. Here they're hitting him while he's blindfolded, telling him to prophesy which one of them was hitting him. So it's clear there's more than one guard. There were several of them taking turns hitting him. There's a sense of irony here at a couple different levels. First, Jesus was the one blindfolded, but it was the guards who could not see who Jesus really was. Second, by the guards beating Jesus, they're actually fulfilling prophecy. Prophecy said earlier in the Gospels, in Luke 9, Luke says, And he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 9, 21 and 22. And again, taking the 12, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, rise. Luke 18, 31 through 33. And this won't be the last time Jesus is subjected to mocking and ridicule. Later in Luke 23, and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And later again, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up 
to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Luke 23, verses 36 and 37. Now, this prophecy isn't just excluded or restricted to the, uh, Luke's gospel, but even in the Old Testament, here Isaiah says, this prophecy was not, or the, the God, excuse me, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward, I gave my back to those who struck and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 7. So yes, Jesus in the moment is being shamed and publicly shamed, but he will be vindicated. We'll talk more about this later. And as prophecy is being fulfilled before our very eyes, it's interesting to note that Jesus remained silent. Imagine the restraint He's exercising at this moment. He could have said anything to get them to stop beating him. I'd imagine he could have picked out a guard and say something else no one knew about. He could have done uh, uh, numerous things to get them to stop hitting, but he did not say anything. He chose to take that beating himself. Moving to our next section in verses 66 through 71, Jesus is being condemned by the council. Now, concerning Jesus' trial scene, in our section today, it's simply the first of four sections here. I have an outline for you here. I just want to see, I want to show you where our passage fits. It's a, a part of a larger picture, and you have here the hearing before Sanhedrin, which we'll go through today. I'm going to hand off the baton to Jason Oakes next week. He'll go over the next three sections, the hearing before Pilate, the hearing before Herod, and the sentencing of Jesus in the very next chapter. So now, this trial is unjust. And there are several breaches to protocol I want to demonstrate. I won't mention them all. I'll only mention a few of the misconduct. So first, Jesus was tried without a defense. According to Sanhedrin document, the accuser needed to be defended. They didn't allow for him to be defended. This was a breach in protocol. Now, hearings are, uh, records are supposed to be made public. <clears throat> it's public information in the trial uh, to trials, and it's meant to expose judges to scrutiny. And that's why judges wanted to get things right to avoid public outcry. And here was a breach of protocol. He was tried without a defense. Second, the verdict took a span of one day. And when it came to capital cases such as this one, a verdict required two days to give ample time, enough for evidence to be gathered. This is a serious charge, so you want to get it right. But it only happened in a span of one day. Uh, finally, I'll mention there were contradictory testimonies that actually nullifies evidence. A confirmation of guilt needs at least two or three witnesses. And according to Matthew and Mark, there were many false witnesses that came forth. They couldn't have taken them all. And you know, the offense to being a false witness in a, uh, on a trial has severe penalties to it. If you were found guilty of being a false witness in a trial, you would suffer the same consequence as the guilty party. So if the guilty party was uh, sentenced to death, you as a false witness would also be sentenced to death. It's a serious charge, but many people still came forth. 
So we're not going to go through all the improprieties today. I think you get the point here. The misconduct of this trial was stunning. It's clear that they didn't want a just trial. And as Jewish leaders, they were supposed to be deeply concerned with justice because God in the Old Testament was deeply concerned about justice. So instead of looking at evidence of both the accused and the accusers objectively, the council took a predetermined verdict and rammed it through for political expediency. They had no interest in a fair trial. And throughout these scenes, you'll notice that Jesus was largely silent and appears he's this passive participant in his own trial and sentencing. It's the Jewish leadership who are the active presence driving the action of this story. And and Luke portrays the Jewish leadership as those in power, the driving force that is pushing, pushing Jesus towards execution. And Luke doesn't leave any stone unturned here. He describes them as chief priests, scribes, elders, and leaders. This is the broadest possible official representation of Israel's leadership. Even Pilate tried to exonerate Jesus. Humanly speaking, Jesus' death is the consequence of this relentless pursuit of the Jewish leadership using power to steamroll due process and hammering through a verdict that they wanted. Luke describes them as insistent in 23.5. They accused Jesus vehemently in 23.10. They kept urging, demanding with loud shouts in 23.23. Also, it wasn't just the leadership, but the people got involved as well. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas in 23.18. Now, this doesn't mean Rome was exempt from responsibility. No, I mean, it was Pilate and Herod who correctly asserts that Jesus was innocent. But despite that, they caved to the crowd and sentenced an innocent man to death. And while this is all a part of God's sovereign plan, this The Jewish leadership and Pilate are moral agents who will be held accountable for their actions. And I think Luke does this to focus on a couple of things. First, it shows the united opposition of the council. Jesus' opponents weren't limited to some fringe group. It was all those in position of leadership and power. They were all in agreement to try to get Jesus executed. Second, I think Luke's trial narrative focuses on Christology. Luke doesn't mention the false witnesses or even the formal death sentence like Matthew and Luke or Matthew and Mark. This allows for us to fo- solely focus on the identity of Jesus. So here, moving on in verse 66, and when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. So here at the beginning of verse 66, when day came, it was actually the second part of this trial. In Mark's gospel, there were two parts to this, one in the evening and one at night. Luke here just focuses on when day broke. The reason why the council waited for the morning was based on a technicality. Another form of misconduct was you couldn't try capital cases during the evening. It had to be during the day, so they waited for day to break Uh, for mere appearance, but this was really a mock trial, a mock meeting, because they've already decided that Jesus was guilty the night before. And continuing with the verse, and they led him away to their council, and they said, in verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. So in asking if Jesus is the Christ, they are essentially asking, hi, are you the Messiah? Luke uses this title early in his gospel in 2.11. It says, for today the city of David, 
there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And Luke will later return to this title. But it's critical to remember to call Jesus Messiah is to confess his rule. It's a royal title. So in claiming Messiahship, you're claiming his rulership and authority. And the verse goes on, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. Verse 68, and if I ask you, you will not answer. So Jesus knows that they've already made up their mind. It's useless to answer because he knows he's not going to get a fair trial. Whatever answer he gives, they're not going to be satisfied. This trial is mere formality, and there's precedence for Jesus not directly uh, uh, responding to the officials. In Luke 20, the chief priests and scribes challenged the authority of Jesus. Jesus asked them about the baptism of John, whether it was from men or from heaven, and they didn't want to answer for various reasons, so they said, I don't know, and then he stopped engaging with them because he knows it was a bad faith discussion. He's not going to prolong something that is meant to be a real dialogue, so he's not going to prolong things here at this mock trial. In verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. While Jesus is currently experiencing public shame, it will eventually give way to the highest honor. So it appears Christ is at the mercy of this council, but Jesus then makes this bold proclamation saying that he is fully in control and that everything is going according to plan. And Jesus is quoting Psalm 110.1 where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here he's drawing on this enthronement image and announce that he will reign at God's right hand, that he will go directly into the presence of God. And although Jesus is before the council as an arrested man, it's him who will be the judge. He is claiming rulership here. He's claiming messiahship here, that God is the one who sent him. And later in the book of Acts, at Pentecost, Peter is preaching to the masses and he says this, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Acts 2, 30, verse 36. And Stephen, before the same Sanhedrin council that condemned Jesus, summarizing the Old Testament from memory, all pointing to the Messiah, Jesus says this, which, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And there it is. Jesus' claim at the trial comes tr- true at Jesus, as Stephen's trial, and he witnesses it. Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, and the rest of the passage goes that the council executed Stephen through stoning for claiming to see Jesus at the right hand of God. He dies this horrible death, but not before he sees the glory of God. But why is this claim so blasphemous, being at the right hand of God? Why this enraged the council, not only in the council and the trial of Jesus, but in the, the, uh, Stephen's account as well? Well, in Judaism, it emphasizes the transcendence of God. They wanted to protect God's uniqueness and holiness. And for most Jews, the idea of coming directly into God's presence and sitting at the right hand without a purification ritual was an insult to God's holiness. For a normal human being to be in the presence of God was to diminish God's statue. So if Jesus' claim is that he's going into the presence of God in the Jewish mind, it was profaning God's person and therefore blasphemous. And this is why the Jewish authorities will condemn Jesus, send him to Pilate to confirm that verdict. They believe Jesus profanes God by claiming to be able to sit at his right hand because this is a uniquely highly exalted position. In short, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. But the resurrection will show that Jesus didn't profane God, but God himself raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand and that he is the one who made atonement and that the Father has sent him into the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the author of Hebrews says this, but when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until the enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10, verse 12 through 14. In our passage in verse 70, it goes on to say, so they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. The son of God was another way to speak of the Messiah. It's another synonymous title, and while Jesus' reply seemed less emphatic as a direct yes, uh, Jesus answers Pilate in the same way in uh, 23.3, where Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the new King James inserts that uh, interpretive word, you rightly say that I am. So he's basically saying, yes, you have inferred correctly at who I am. Given how they reacted with anger, it was a clear affirmation of claiming that title. And look at how they reacted in verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. This, of course, is a rhetorical question. In the council's mind, there's no more need for testimony and the trial doesn't need to go any further. 
the leaders could now take Jesus to the Romans. And from the council's perspective, Jesus' words were too dangerous to believe and too treacherous to leave alone. They couldn't just let him go after that confession. They had to do something because Jesus' claim requires a decision. Either he is correct that he is the son of God, he is the sent one, the Messiah, or he's a liar and deserving of death. So we're through our passage. So implications and some themes I saw in this passage. I came up with six. Now, that's way more than I usually come up with. I saw Rob Lister, he came up with eight or nine. Eric Tonis always comes up with like 15. I figured, man, I gotta up my game a little. So I came up with six, six. So first, failure. Where Peter failed, Jesus succeeded. Second, fulfilled. Jesus fulfills prophecies showing God's sovereign faithfulness. And in fulfilling God's will, there will be opposition. There will be a fight. But despite that fight, Jesus was fearless. He was courageous, which sets an example for us. Fifth, faith. Trusting that suffering has a purpose. That God does care about the affairs of his people. And finally, the question that's foundational to our faith, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Okay, let's go through each one of these. So first, failure. Failure. Peter failed and Jesus succeeded. I wanted to focus a little bit on the placement of the passage. And I hope we don't read our Bibles like we read the newspaper in that there there are several isolated articles that are unconnected to each other. Particularly the Gospels. The Gospel writers arrange these stories in a certain way to emphasize a point. And I believe the passage right before where Randy preached last week of Peter's denial is meant to show two fulfilled prophecies side by side. Jesus predicted that Peter would reject him. Chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. And here now, another prophecy being fulfilled that he's suffering under the hands of the Jewish leadership. I also believe another reason for that is the same idea where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness when he was being tempted by Satan. So here, Peter failed when the pressure was on. But when Jesus faced the authorities, he didn't waver. Jesus followed through with God's plan, starting here with his apprehension and trial and all the way to the cross and the resurrection. And because he followed through with God's plan, he's able to meet Peter's failure with forgiveness, hope, and encouragement. Because he became the high priest that could sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He could do this because he's done the work of atonement. So where we fail, Jesus has succeeded. And now, through faith in him, we have his righteousness. And our sins are covered by his blood. Second, fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled prophecy and God's will, which shows the faithfulness of God. That he is indeed all-powerful. That he could make a promise and see it through. Listen to Tozier speaking about the faithfulness of God upon God's faithfulness rest our whole hope of future blessedness. 
Only as he is faithful will his covenant stand and his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. And yes, Jesus is an example of faithfulness under the harshest of circumstances. And if Jesus did not waver, then we could trust in his character that he will never leave us or forsake us. That should give us tremendous assurance. Third, it's going to be a fight. There will be opposition. And at least in our passage, there's two ways how this uh, is played out. First, you have the soldiers who physically disrespected Jesus, mocking him, beating him. So don't be surprised at those who ferociously mock the faith and sin with the high hand. We're not more sanitized today than people back then. And secondly, you have the Jewish leaders who also mock the faith but are more civil about it, but are not any less negative. And we see that in our culture as well. I'll give you two examples in our contemporary setting. Take abortion, for example. Now, some politicians want to codify this into law, and they fight for it as though it's a sacrament of their platform, because it is. Another example is the White House hanging the LGBTQ flag in support of its ideology. It denies natural law, the created order, and it exchanges the glory of God for the glory of man. And these issues appear more civil in that abortion is often framed under the guise of women's rights or women's health care. And the LGBTQ agenda is often framed under the guise of equal rights or marriage equality, as though we were somehow for marriage inequality. But make no mistake, these things are evil without qualification and a manifestation of a hatred towards God. Abortion is murder of an innocent, unborn baby. The LGBTQ agenda is an attempt to exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. It says that humans' desires reign supreme, not natural law, not the created order, or God himself, which then leads to my next point. We have to be fearless because Jesus was fearless. He was courageous. After being beaten and mocked and shamed, and then he was stood before the council, you think that would have softened up a bit. You think doubt would have crept into his mind and saying, you know what, I don't know how much more I could take of this. Yet he stood before the council with deep and unwavering resolve. It had no impact on him. I'm sure it physically hurted. But in terms of his will, he had this unmatched determination to complete the will of the Father. And there was this drive by eschatological certainty of victory And his victory means his opponents will be defeated. Look at this verse. In Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And here, this part, and not frighten in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You know, I actually, I wasn't even looking for this verse when I was 
preparing this sermon, I just stumbled across it. And I must have, I don't know, I've read Philippians countless of times, but that verse jumped out at me. That gave fire in my bones. You mean our courage, not being frightened by enemies or our adversaries, is an evidence of a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that this idea connects to striving side by side and standing firm. It's a togetherness for the gospel. This lack of fear shows our adversaries that they will not prevail against Jesus. And our evidence or our courage is evidence of their ruin. And that's why they get mad and they will be defeated. And Jesus stood alone before the council, but because of the resurrection, we don't have to stand alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit and he's given us each other, this striving together, side by side, standing firm in one spirit, in one body as the local church. Furthermore, Jesus didn't go through this suffering, this unfair trial, this beating and this mocking and this ridicule. So then we could turn around and live a life of ease and constant comfort. No, Jesus' example, standing for the truth, will be met with hatred and hostility and slander. And we need to be faithful when hardship comes. And this is what D.A. Carson says. A church that is merely comfortable, that never evangelizes, never encourages its people to stand on the front line, will never be strong, never be grateful, never be able to sort out profoundly Christian priorities and values because it's only in the context of suffering that Christians can learn what it means to be more than conquerors. See, for God has chosen that through suffering, we shall bear the fruits of righteousness. And this leads to my next point, point five, that we must have faith in the midst of suffering. Suffering has a purpose for Jesus, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, Hebrews 2.18. Second, for us, when it comes to us suffering, it deepens our faith and it deepens our knowledge of God. Listen to what Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. See, fire purifies gold. It's the heat that brings out impurities. And suffering purifies our faith. And it's the heat that brings out our impurities. Listen to what Paul says. But we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, 3 through 5, see for Paul, he viewed suffering as a privilege, a grace granted to us so then when we suffer by taking a stand for the gospel, we align ourselves with Jesus. We align ourselves with the will of God. We align ourselves with the heart of God. And for Peter, there's a cost to being a Christian. There's a process of going through the fire and being tested in our faith. And when faith is tested, it becomes pure. It becomes deeper. Now, this is not a universal rule. Suffering and testing can produce unbelief. It can produce bitterness, anger, resentment, complaining. 
But when suffering is met with faith, it produces perseverance. And then perseverance, perseverance grows into hope or character. And character then produces hope, a hope that delights in our reconciliation with God, that we are now a child of God. And this hope will not put us to shame. Our faith is then deepened beyond the superficial things of this world, but take root and are grounded to the unseen things of eternity. And what, even when I consider our own church body, there's a bunch of things that still perplex me. I don't know why there are filled, we're filled with, with, with failed relationships, struggling marriages, miscarriages, wayward children, families ravaged by cancer, losing loved ones. You probably have your own, I don't know why. You know, when I first became a Christian, the first book I read uh, from start to finish was actually the book of Job. You know, I would read uh, bits and pieces of the Bible, uh, but I finally decided to, oh, okay, I'll just take a book and just read it straight through. So keep in mind, I knew next to nothing about God or the Bible, so I started reading Job, and I see Satan roaming to and fro on the earth, getting in this dialogue with God. God offers up Job to Satan, which was, you know, pretty frightening when, when I first read it. It's still frightening, actually. Uh, Satan takes him up on that offer. Then Job proceeds to lose his uh, wealth, his family, his health. But he still refused to curse God. And he even said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. But as time went on, doubt crept in. Job started doubting the justice of God because Job felt he was wrong. He knew he was an innocent man. He didn't deserve any of this. God then shows up, proclaims himself as the creator, challenges Job's thinking and saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Are you the one that tells the waves of the ocean to only come this far? Have you tamed the Leviathan in the deep? Job in awe repents of his unbelief. God proceeds to rebuke Job's friends for misrepresenting him and then he restores everything to Job by the end of the book. And you know, as a reader, you know what's going on behind the scenes. And as I was reading this for the very first time, I kept anticipating the moment that God's going to tell him what's going on. And then I get to the end of the book, and it ends. I was like, wait, what, what happened? Where, where's the dialogue? I was totally waiting for God to say, hey, you know what? Let me pull you aside real quick, Job. You know, Satan and I were having this conversation, and we was just a little arrogant. I felt like I had to knock him down a couple pegs, and I knew you were the guy to do it. You were going to remain faithful through hardship. Way to go, buddy. You proved my point. I was waiting for that to happen, and then when the book ended, I was like, wait a minute, did I buy a complete Bible? Is there an appendix that I need to read? How come that conversation never happened? Heck, I would want to know that that was all going on. But upon years of reflection, I could only infer that one, Job no longer cared about the why because he met the who. And, he, and despite going through this hardship, he was able to live with the peace of God. And even through my personal suffering, I got to the point of all the things I've went through in the past that, you know, I don't, I don't really care why anymore. Oh, sure, there's some level of curiosity. I think that's always going to be there. It's just being human. But I'm not consumed by anything that's happened in my past. And our past, although significant, is not determinative. Meaning that we don't have to view life through the lens 
of victimhood or through the lens of our suffering. Oh, our difficulties matter. They shape who we are. God has a purpose in it all, but it doesn't determine our identity. I'm not primarily a a survivor of child abuse. No, I'm a redeemed child of God, washed by the blood of Christ. The past doesn't consume me anymore. I lay all those things behind and press forward to the upward call of Christ. And it's the peace of God that rules the heart. And I rest in God's sovereign goodness. And God has decreed that through suffering comes with it a greater glory that we would otherwise not have experienced for it has been granted to us for the sake of Christ that we should not only believe but also to suffer for his sake. Final point, the foundational question of our faith, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In verse 71, the question is, what further testimony do we need? Now, while this question was meant to indict Jesus uh, at his council, but I'm going to flip this question and ask it of us. It wasn't due to a lack of evidence, but a lack of openness why the Jewish leaders um, wanted to execute him. They wouldn't believe that he was the Messiah. They wouldn't believe that Jesus was their Savior. But what further testimony do we need? Just in Luke's gospel alone, we have the angel Gabriel announcing the birth of Jesus, the miraculous virgin birth through Mary. The baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove, the heavens opening, the voice of God the Father himself saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus being led to the wilderness to face Satan in all his temptations and yet coming out victorious. Jesus goes on preaching in the synagogues, cleanses leopards, heals paralytics, raises the dead, rebukes the storms, casts out demons. He feeds thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people on meager resources. He fights the establishment without fear, then lays down his life willingly. Oh, and not just the Gospel of Luke, but beyond that, from eternity past, from the Old Testament prophets have declared centuries ago that he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And it was the Lord that laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. It was God the Father who put him to grief because out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the suffering servant, make many to be accounted righteous because he shall bear their iniquities. And he did this by emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. 
He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because of this obedience, God has highly exalted and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, under the earth, or on the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise and glory of God the Father. So who is it that condemns? It's Christ Jesus who died and again has risen and is at the right hand of God, making intercession on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall mocking, shall beatings, shall spitting, blindfolding, false accusations, unjust trials, corrupt authorities? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing shall separate us. From the love of God. So I say again, what further testimony do we need? If you have not received Christ as your Savior, let today be the day of salvation by acknowledging that you are a sinner, asking for forgiveness, and placing your complete faith and trust in the work of Christ. And those of us who have made this profession, if you're discouraged going through trials, know that you're not alone. Christ has given us the Holy Spirit. And he's given us one another. So lift your eyes to the hill. Know where your help comes from, the creator of heaven and earth. And take heart, for he has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sovereign suffering, that you have a purpose in it all. And although we may look out with perplexity, I thank you that your word brings clarity. May it transform our perspective and our lives and live in a way that is fearless before opposition. In Jesus' name.